Gospel here in Exodus 9, the story of the plagues continues. And verse 1, let my people go that they may serve me. And I think the emphasis should be on the word me. Because the, the Hebrew word translated serve there is the same word that's used about Israel being in slavery, in servitude to Pharaoh there in, uh, there in Egypt. And it seems to me that um, what God is saying is, I want my people to have a change of masters. They have been slaves to you, and I want them now to be slaves to me. So you, Pharaoh, are the, uh, the, the lord, as it were, of, the, uh, of these slaves. Now I am their lord. They are going to be my slaves. And of course, realizing that Israel crossing the Red Sea is set up in 1 Corinthians 10 as a, a kind of a prototype of our baptism, our leaving of Egypt, of the world, uh, and then uh, moving into the sphere of God's operations, of course you, you see the similarity with, uh, with Romans 6 in the classic exposition of baptism where Paul says that baptism is a change of masters. But the point I want to make is that it's a changeover from being the slave of one, one person, if you like, in this case Pharaoh, or the flesh personified, uh, and becoming slaves of somebody else, of God through his son, the Lord Jesus. So then to call Jesus Lord is to really say he is my master and I am his slave. And so you see then that really radical freedom in the sense of absolutely uh, free to do what I want as I want, but that is not in view. And the great paradox is that the way to that ultimate freedom is through servitude uh, to the Lord Jesus. And so the idea that I want to be free, to do exactly what I want, to think as I want, act as I want, do as I want, if I see it and I want it, I'll get it, if I fancy doing something, I shall do it. Uh, the idea that, wow, that's such a great way to live, that is an uh, absolute myth, uh, because actually you are in slavery to the flesh. And the concept of us being servants of the Lord Jesus is pretty radical when you realize that it's not just servants as in, well, doing someone a favor, but the idea is really slavery. Now, going further than that, in verse 2, if you refuse to let them go and hold them still, then the hand of Yahweh, verse 3, will be on your livestock, which is in the field, etc., and verse 5, Yahweh appointed a set time, saying, Tomorrow Yahweh shall do this thing in the land. But, although that sounds pretty clear, there is a set time appointed when God will do this thing, this was all conditional. You see, if you just read verse 5 out of context, you would say, Well, God appointed a set time, tomorrow, at uh, whatever time it was going to be, Yahweh is going to do this. But if you refuse, verse 2, you see, there's a condition. And we need to bear this in mind because reading a lot of uh, prophecy, we can get the idea that those things are predicted uh, as going to happen. Whereas I query whether prophecy in that sense is prediction necessarily. It is at times, but not always. I mean, the, the, the original words translated to prophesy really mean to speak forth. It is a speaking forth of, of God's word. And so, so much depends upon human response. And I think that 
Bearing that in mind, that is why I feel myself it is impossible to construct a chronology of events in the last days before Christ comes. We have all the, the data, as it were, all the uh, different prophecies that there are in Old and New Testaments about events around the return of Christ. And it's very tempting to try to put these together into some chronological system whereby, first of all, such and such country is to invade Israel, and then Israel will do this, and then such and such country will do this, etc. But somehow, to me at least, it all falls down. And it falls down, I think, because we're not intended to do that, because those prophecies are, in a sense, open-ended. What if Israel repent? I mean, don't forget, Nineveh repented. Jonah was sent to preach to them, and a whole city repented. It is not impossible that national repentance could happen in Israel. The question is when it will happen. And because that depends upon the minds of people, and whether or not people want to go God's way, that is all open to some degree. In the same way as God's purpose with you and I is to some degree open, it all depends the degree to which we are responsive. And God is just amazing, really, in how he has set up so many possible futures. If you do this, then this uh, train of events shall happen. But then if at that point you fail and you go the, the way of the flesh and you don't keep following what I'm leading you, then such and such train of events will happen. But the point is, I think that here with Pharaoh, God wants him to repent. The way maybe it reads uh, through translation, it could be that God is you know, really just uh, almost playing a mind game with Pharaoh and is bent on destroying him. But I, I don't think that is the case. I would say that God wanted Pharaoh's repentance, even with him. And I suppose the, uh, the classic point really is... Uh, in verse 14, that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. And so, God, well, verse 15 in the NEV, and I admit this is um, it's a matter of translation, but anyway, I'll read it in the NEV, verse 15. For now I would have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this cause I raised you up to show in you my power. Now, you could argue that what that means is that if, verse 14, you recognize that there is none like me in all the earth, then, or this doesn't have to happen, I was going to kill you outright, but I didn't. I was going to kill you and your people, all the Egyptians, with plague, and cut you off, you in the plural, uh, from the earth. Uh, but he doesn't do that to Egypt. He says, that's what I was going to do, but I didn't, because I want you to know that there is none like me in all the earth. I would argue that that is really saying that I want you to repent. That's a pretty major implication for us, uh, because we tend to give up with people. She's not interested. He'll never be interested in in the things of God or the truth, etc., but God tried even with Pharaoh, even with the very epitome of a, a man of the flesh, basically. Now, if God doesn't give up, if God really tries even with a Pharaoh, it is not for us to decide that uh, 
we're wasting our time. Now, of course, if you have endless discussions with an individual and they don't at this point respond, it may not be worth uh, you know, wasting your time continuing with them in that sense. But what I'm saying is, in the longer term, don't give up with that person. Treat that as a temporary setback, that they are temporarily resisting. But in the longer term, send them an email after six months or whatever. Keep on with people. Indeed, the very way that the, the whole rubric of the record, like in verse 7, says, but the heart of Pharaoh was stubborn, it's hardened, he didn't let the people go. It's almost like, well, unfortunately he failed. And the exciting thing in, in this chapter, although the, uh, the very tragic thing, uh, I, I suppose, in, in this chapter, is in verse 27, where he actually says, I have sinned this time. Yahweh is righteous, and I and my people are wicked. So, and pray to Yahweh for me. You know, I, I mean, it, he almost gets there, but he, he doesn't. Clearly, this is where he was being led. But although God kept giving him all these kind of nudges and jogs, he didn't respond ultimately. Now, all these plagues that we're reading of here, we kind of meet them again in the book of Revelation by way of uh, allusion. Uh, for example, in verse 22, the whole language of there being this huge hail uh, in all the land of Egypt, on man, animal, and on every herb, herb of the field. Um, if you just scribble in your margin, Revelation 16:21, uh, this is the language of the latter day plagues upon the uh, opponents of God's people Israel. And in fact, all these plagues that we read about here recurred in some sense in the judgments that we read about in Revelation. And in the same way, I do think that the whole uh, prophetic program, as it's outlined in Revelation, um, is in order to bring people, even pharaohs, to repentance. But unfortunately, as we read in Revelation, they did not repent, or they will not repent, or not, not all of them will repent. But it's, this is not an angry God hitting back at people who have been nasty to his beloved people. This is a God seeking for repentance. And this really is how we should be, if ever it comes to our lot to have to discipline somebody. I mean, we're looking for repentance, and we're not looking to hit anybody for the sake of it. Now, here in this chapter it's emphasized that the plagues did not affect the Israelites, the ones that we're reading about here, verse 7, not so much as one of the livestock of the Israelites died, and then in verse 31, uh, the flax and the barley were struck, and that apparently was the uh, sort of food and crops that the Egyptians grew, but 32, the wheat and the spelt were not struck, for they had not grown up. Now that apparently is... Uh, the, the sort of food that the Israelites would have, uh, would have been sowing. So Israel start off experiencing some of the plagues, but then afterwards they don't. And I think that inevitably, I suppose, we go to Isaiah 26 at the end there, where, of the chapter where we're told that in the last days, God will say to his people, come into, into your chamber and rest a while until the indignation be overpassed. So in the, the plagues, if you like, in the judgments that are to come upon the earth in the last days, which, according to the illusions Revelation makes back here, 
we are to understand as being based around these plagues upon Egypt, uh, we will maybe suffer the first part of them, but then there will be some deliverance of us. Now, how mechanically that will happen, I don't know. Uh, but it would appear to be, from both the type and from Isaiah 26 and the implications, I think, of a few other passages, that we will somehow be preserved or taken away. Now, in terms of what was going on here with Pharaoh, of course, this uh, separation of Israelites from Egyptians was looking forward to what was going to finally happen in the plague of the, of the firstborn that would not touch the people of Israel. All the time, God is trying to nudge Pharaoh into, I think, repentance so that he doesn't have to do that. And it's the same, really, with the whole thing about the Red Sea. Uh, as we uh, going to comment on chapter 10 about the plague of the locusts, that an east wind brings the locusts, and then a west wind takes them away. Uh, and, of course, it's an east wind which is then sent to divide the Red Sea. All the locusts are cast into the Red Sea, we read, uh, just as Pharaoh and his chariots were cast into the Red Sea. Now, why does God do that? Because he wants to give Pharaoh ahead of time some sort of picture of what is likely to happen. It's as if he gives him a sort of a small scale uh, experience of what is going to happen to him unless he repents. Now, this also happens in our lives. We're seeing here principles at work. And Pharaoh sadly does not respond. I mean, verse 19, in the NEV, it's a bit unclear. Now, therefore, command that all of your livestock, uh, etc., be brought into shelter. Um, the AV, more correctly, says, now send so that all your livestock be brought into shelter. That word translated send or command is uh, the same word translated let go. Verse, uh, verse 1, let my people go. Release them, send them out. That's the idea. Send them out that they may serve me. Now, God gives Pharaoh his word and says, look, okay, you can't seem to bring yourself to let my people go, to send my people out. Now, okay, in response to my word, at least send out, let go your servants to go and bring your livestock in. So, uh, although the, in English translation that is not particularly apparent, it is definitely there in the Hebrew text. And again, it's a baby step that God's asking Pharaoh to take. And I'm just so, so touched by the degree of effort that God is making with this man through verbal illusion, through similarity of circumstance, etc. It's, it's amazing. And if this is what God does to Pharaoh, I, you know, I'm not saying that we're so righteous, but we are not as Pharaoh. We are trying to be soft-hearted and not hard-hearted. God is working like that with you and me. And in our low moments, we maybe think that God is sort of there, but not very active. But he is active. We may not perceive it, but he is there, nudging and jogging us to go the way that he wants us to go and that actually we ourselves as believers ultimately want to go as well. And we come with Job to feel, as he says, and I'm paraphrasing, sort of, wow, 
Why, oh God, do you test me every single second, every moment? Why do you keep doing this? Just give me a break. Give me some kind of holiday from this. Give me a break at least. He perceived in the depth of his sufferings that God was really amazingly active in his life, and he almost was tired of it. Now, if you don't get that feeling about your life, pray to God, please, to open your eyes that you see his hand at work. Because in big things and small things, and particularly I like to think in the small things of of hour by hour life, God is there nudging you. There is ultimately nothing like pure total randomness or chance in the life of the believer. A couple of other things. Um, Verse 14, I will send all my plagues upon your heart. These plagues that were sent were, of course, physical miracles uh, that that happened uh, upon Egypt. But the essence of the plagues was upon the heart of Pharaoh. But I've just been making a case that God wants Pharaoh to repent. So why then does he plague his heart? Why does God harden his heart? As you probably know, roughly the same number of times that we read about God hardening Pharaoh's heart, we read about Pharaoh hardening his own heart. And I think the answer may be this, that God wants to save people. He wants us to go his way, but the way he operates is to confirm us in the way in which we choose to go, especially psychologically. And that is what I think he's doing here with with Pharaoh. He wanted to go a certain way, so God confirmed him in that way. This, in my opinion, is the difference between the Holy Spirit or spirit meaning sort of the mind, disposition, attitude, uh, a spirit of holiness from God, confirming us in the right way, and as happened with King Saul, an evil spirit or mentality, psychology, worldview, whatever you want to call it, uh, an evil spirit from the Lord, no place there for Satan with horns or whatever, Uh, this is all from the Lord. Uh, The point is that you can never take a break. You can never say, yeah, well, today I shall not be particularly righteous nor particularly naughty, as it were. I'll just be in the middle. No, God is waiting there to confirm us, whichever way we want to go. And although on one hand that is how he operates, you also see another, shall I call it, dimension, another element in God's operation with men and women, which is, quite simply, to bring us to repentance and to bring us his way. So it's not as if he is indifferent and just saying, yeah, well, I'll confirm you whichever way you want to go. Yes, that is true. Uh, But there is also this very strong leading from him because he wants to lead us to repentance. God will have all men to be saved and to, to come to repentance. I wonder, verse 10, why they took ashes of the furnace and sprinkled it up toward the sky and then it turns into a boil breaking out on man and beast. Why this mechanism? Why this taking ashes of the furnace? And I don't really quite know, but in light of what I've just suggested about God's way of operating with Pharaoh, I suggest this, that the idea of a furnace is really a smelting place. That, that's what the uh, Hebrew word seems to imply, a, a furnace that smelts, that melts, so that iron can be worked. And once you understand that, then when you read about 
Pharaoh's heart being hardened, that is also part of this metaphor, if you like. That, and of course, Egypt and a furnace are connected in later scripture when we read about Egypt as the great furnace out of which Israel were brought. And so God worked on Pharaoh to try to make him soft. Uh, but unfortunately, he hardened his heart. He went cold again, as it were. Why ashes of the furnace? Well, the ashes are what's left over. Once the process has been done, this is the, the byproduct, the waste from it. And so God did all this with Pharaoh, but it didn't work out. And so therefore it was, if you like, the, uh, the byproduct, the waste, the leftover of the process that was done but didn't really work with him, which turned into this harmful boil upon him and upon his servants. Talking about the boil, you get the same word later on in Deuteronomy 28, where Israel are told that if they sin and they turn back from God, they will be smitten with the, the AV says, with the botch of Egypt. And it's uh, the boil of Egypt. And the idea is, what happened to Pharaoh and the Egyptians, which you were saved from at that time, is going to happen to you. The boil or the botch of Egypt is going to break out upon you. And so there you have the idea that the judgments upon the world, Egypt, shall come upon God's people if they turn away from him. And this is a major Bible theme. All through the appeals to leave Babylon, come out from her, my people, in Jeremiah and in Revelation, so that you don't be consumed in the judgment for her sins. This idea is strangely relevant to the breaking of bread because in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul does play upon this quite clearly where he, he says that if we would condemn ourselves now in our self-examination, then we will not need to be condemned with the world. So if in our self-examination before the cross of Christ now, we come to realize that I should not be saved, I should be condemned, then we will not need to be condemned with the world at the last day. And so how is condemnation going to work out? Well, condemned with the world, Paul says, um, this is very much the idea of come out from Babylon unless you're going to be consumed in, her, in the judgment for her sins. And so I think that the, the mechanical, if you like, the physical punishment of the, the rejected will be to be sent back into the world. If in the end your heart was in this world, your heart was with the guys at work, your heart was with uh, your worldly friends, etc., then you will be sent back. Uh, that's where you wanted to be. Okay, go back there. And, well, actually, they're uh, just experiencing all the plagues, all the, the wrath of God poured out upon them. And, uh, okay, that's how you want it to be. Then that's how it shall be. And so the... The whole purpose of God is not to, not to condemn people. He is calling out a people for his name. And it's up to us whether we respond, whether we soften ourselves in the furnace of affliction, which we all go through in this life, that the whole purpose of, of what comes into our lives is, I think, to soften us in the end. And, of course, it can go one of two ways. It can harden people. But God's intention is that it should soften you, so that 
you are softer in your attitude to people, that you are the more sensitive. Instead of being hardened and becoming hard because of all these things. That is, in the end, what God wants of you. Responsiveness, sensitivity, softness. And not the hardness, which increasingly, it seems to me, is the stamp and the hallmark of the world in which we live. So then, summing up, God wants us to be his, to be his slaves, to not be slaves of Egypt. And when Paul says, don't be the slaves of men, but be the slaves of God, I think he's alluding back here. This is the, the seedbed for so much later allusion in the New Testament. Don't be the slaves of men. Be the slaves of God. And realize that there is only one of two options in life. That there's not a third way. That you can't sometimes be a slave of one, sometimes of another. That, that there's not a third master out there who maybe you can dig out and, and serve him. Uh, no, it is either Egypt or God. And that is the greatest paradox of all. That through choosing him, through the service of his son, we do come to what I would call radical freedom. I'm using the word radical in the, almost a scientific sense. That uh, radical in the sense of, of total uh, freedom uh, to act <clears throat> and respond as you wish. Uh, but because you have chosen to go the way of the Lord Jesus Christ, the way that you want to go is in fact his way.